Former State Department leadership says it's time to rethink what a stint in the Foreign Service looks like. Options on the table include transforming the agency's up-or-out system of promotions and allowing outside experts to lend their talents to the Foreign Service for a few years at a time. Former officials say those changes would help the department retain a diverse pool of mid-career talent. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. The last time Congress passed major legislation to restructure the Foreign Service was more than 40 years ago. Now lawmakers say it's time to take a closer look at the state of the diplomatic workforce. The State Department, in order to address long-standing workforce and diversity challenges, is under pressure to reimagine the Foreign Service as something other than a 30-year career and to make its diplomatic core more accommodating to borrow outside expertise when needed. The State Department has to offer a better value proposition for every employee 10 years in, or we'll lose them to the private sector or to NGOs or nonprofits, or they'll simply choose to stay home with their families uh, where they may make a a better work-life balance than they get in the department. That's former Secretary of State Stephen Began. He's one of several former department leaders who told members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week that the Foreign Service risks losing future generations of talent unless it modernizes its up-or-out culture and develops a more inclusive workforce. Senator Bill Haggerty, ranking member of the subcommittee that oversees State Department management and a former U.S. ambassador to Japan, says reform is overdue. Besides updating the 1980 Foreign Service Act, Haggerty says Congress should stand up a bipartisan commission to examine every aspect of American diplomacy. We should be bold in reimagining the State Department, and this should be guided by some very basic foundational questions. To name just a few, what is the purpose of embassies in the 21st century? How can the State Department attract, retain, and train the best talent? And what kind of infrastructure does the State Department need at home and abroad in the 21st century? Marcy Reese is a former ambassador to Bulgaria and Albania. Last year, she co-authored a report with Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs outlining ways to modernize the diplomatic workforce. Reese recommends standing up a diplomatic reserve corps, a State Department equivalent to a military reserve force. She says that would allow retired Foreign Service personnel and experts from outside the department to provide their skills on a part-time basis. A diplomatic reserve corps would be aimed at giving the State Department the ability to surge to respond to unforeseen contingencies. Anne-Marie Slaughter is the CEO of the New America Think Tank and the department's former director of policy planning. She says the department would be better served by mid-career experts signing up for a multi-year tour of service at any point in their career rather than recruit talent for their entire career. Obviously not everybody stays in for 30 years, but the point is you have to start at the bottom and work your way up. I want us to be able to see a leading NGO leader or a top business person or a university professor who then says, you know, I want to serve my country for, again, could be seven to 10 years, five years renewable. I'll do the training, but I'm not going to follow this traditional ladder. Began says a modernized State Department would be better positioned to respond to threats like COVID-19 and other global pandemics. When it came time to respond to that pandemic, we had to build it on the fly. We were building the plane as we were flying it. Now the State Department and its incredible talent can overcome a lot of obstacles. But still, uh, something like a retired diplomatic corps like Ambassador Rees recommended would have been of enormous benefit to us, especially if people had experience in these things. But we need our diplomats out there at the front lines of where 
issues like global pandemics arise. And that's just one issue of dozens of issues that the nation is left exposed if we don't have a more agile and responsive diplomacy. Subcommittee Chairman Ben Cardin says Congress should also take a closer look at the way the State Department trains the Foreign Service. Cardin says the department spends about half of its training budget on language learning, but in at least one of every four assignments, the minimum language skills aren't being met. In the Defense Department and Defense budget, we have built-in redundancies so that we can surge and take care of contingencies that could occur that's in our national security interest to defend against. But at state, we really do not have that capacity to surge. Slaughter says part of the reason for that gap in language proficiency is that the Foreign Service's three to four year rotation assignments don't make much sense. Say you're in Vietnam, you might be sent to Peru. You're not likely to be sent to Japan, in part because of fears that you'll go native, that you'll, you'll spend too much time in one region. Other foreign services don't do that, right? They, you, you know one Asian language and then you learn another. And other ways of, of allowing people to stay longer, there's a lot of room there, I think, for recruiting differently. This conversation is happening at a critical juncture for the department. Secretary of State Antony Blinken recently named former U.S. Ambassador to Malta Gina Abercrombie Winstonley to serve as the department's first chief diversity and inclusion officer. Meanwhile, the Biden administration's fiscal 2022 budget would support the department's largest increase in personnel in more than a decade. This conversation is also coming at a time when the Government Accountability Office has issued several reports documenting the department's lack of progress in improving the diversity of its higher ranks. Began says the department is doing a better job in bringing in a diverse pool of talent. The State Department actually is doing better than it has in the past in recruitment. The funnel is open much more wider to Americans to join the department in the A100 classes, the entry-level classes that I saw during my tenure were impressively diverse and full of just the, the most amazing young and, and not so young talent because we recruit people from all ages as well. Despite this progress with recruitment, Began says the department still has problems retaining mid-career employees. There's something that's happening in the State Department career cycle that's affecting our employees and particularly our people of color. And because the numbers start to shift when you get to about 10 years in the department. I think it has a lot to do with our training development. It has a lot to do with our promotional processes in the department. And both of those deserve very close scrutiny. Training somebody to advance inside the organization is the best way to signal to them that there's a future for them in the organization. When you don't invest in training them, uh, and if the leadership isn't there to recruit them for promotional opportunities, it's very easy for them to interpret that as a signal that they're not wanted in the department. And because the State Department is still able to attract the best talent in this country, they're also at risk. Began said about 15% of the department's personnel should be in training at any given time, but instead, he says supervisors will press staff to start their assignments as soon as possible and to forego training. The Pentagon would never do that. The United States military would never take somebody off a deployment and put them onto a new deployment. It may be in the most critical needs of the country, but as a routine matter, that would be unforgivable. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. And you can find Jory's report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. 
During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about, but that's should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening, 
to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.